Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. Well, good morning. Uh, If I've not met you, my name is David. I'm the lead pastor here at Apostles. And if you're visiting with us, we're so uh, glad that you've chosen to worship here this morning. Um, We are a community seeking to follow Jesus uh, here in the city. And we're looking to do that together. And one of the ways we do that together is we, uh, we look to God's word. Uh, to direct us and to shape us. And we've been doing that by uh, this series called Christ in the Psalms. And this morning we're gonna take a look at Psalm 32 together. And so if you wanna open up to that Psalm we just heard, read Psalm 32, there should be a Bible near you in one of the seat backs. Um, Or if you wanna pull it up on your phone, Psalm 32. Now, uh, as you're turning there, I wanna share with you a story. Uh, And it's a story uh, of a man named Zwignef Stipolkowski. I'm going to say that one more time, because I can. Signef Stipolikowski. And so the story of uh, Kipolikowski, uh, Stipolikowski, man, I can't say it. Stipolikowski, I'll get it right. Uh, so this uh, is the story of a man who was a freedom fighter in World War II. So he was Polish. He was part of the Polish underground. And he uh, was a part of a group of folks that were resisting the Nazis and the Soviet communist takeover of Poland. And as the World uh, War II came to an end, uh, he and his fellow um, fighters were captured by the Soviets. And when they were captured, they were ruthlessly tortured and interrogated uh, for almost two months. And the goal of their interrogators was to really put their lives under this intense spotlight. Uh, They looked at everything about their lives. They they, they went through their work, their marriage, their sex life, their their children, their family, their faith, everything you can think of. Every aspect of their life was brought under the spotlight. They were starved. They were deprived of sleep. They were constantly terrorized. And the goal uh, of the interrogators was to prepare them for a a mock trial, a a farce of a trial where they would be uh, basically convicted of being traitors to the Soviet communist regime. And so their goal was to break down these men's integrity so they would say whatever they were told to say. That was their goal. Now, 15 of the 16 men who were captured together and put into this uh, grueling um, uh, interrogation, 15 of the 16 men eventually gave in. Uh, They broke them, in other words. And in fact, the 15 turned against the one man who had been their leader throughout all this time, who was uh, Stiplikowski. Now, Stiplikowski was different, though. He never broke. He never signed a confession. Uh, And they kept trying to break him and trying to break him, and he refused. He refused to confess to something that was not true, that he had not done. And so at at the time of the trial, he pled not guilty, and it was only through a series of kind of diplomatic negotiations that he was eventually um, delivered from the death penalty and set free. And so he got to tell his story. Now, later, when he was asked about his story, he was asked, "How how did you endure How did you endure these intense interrogations and all this torture? And this is what he said. He said, I've never felt it necessary to justify myself with excuses. When they showed me as a coward, I already knew it. And they took their finger, when they put their finger towards me and accused me of doing filthy, lewd things, I already knew that I had done them. 
When they showed me a reflection of myself with all my inadequacies, I said to them, but gentlemen, I am much worse than that. For you see, I had learned it was unnecessary to justify myself. One had already done that for me, Jesus Christ. Sipulikowski had learned, as he says, that it was unnecessary for him to justify himself. And so even in his captivity, he could live in real freedom in Jesus. Freedom from fear and accusation and condemnation and shame. I thought about that story as I read again through Psalm 32, because I think that story, it asks of me and I think asks of all of us uh, this question, what if we could walk in that kind of freedom every day? What if you could walk in freedom from guilt and shame, freedom from self-loathing, freedom from condemnation, freedom from the burdens of the sin that we all secretly carry? What if we could live in freedom from that? I believe and I've personally experienced that Psalm 32, I think, is a gift from the Lord in this sense. that It, it serves as kind of a road map to spiritual freedom in Christ. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at Psalm 32 this morning. So with our Bibles open, let me just tell you just a, a little bit about it um, and why I think this connects with what I just shared about this Polish freedom fighter. Because David wrote this psalm. King David of the Bible wrote this psalm, we believe. And David, like Stipulikowski, had discovered that it was unnecessary for him to justify himself. David, too, had encountered God's unmerited mercy and forgiveness. And we know that because of how the psalm begins. Listen to what David says at the beginning of Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's the blessing that David experienced. That's his starting point. And that's the blessing I think that God wants to give each of us this morning as we look at Psalm 32. It's, it's a gift of freedom. It's the gift of the freedom of forgiveness. And so that's what I'm titling our sermon this morning, The Freedom of Forgiveness, as we look together at Psalm 32. And as we look at Psalm 32 and we consider the freedom of forgiveness, I, I want it to serve as both a mirror for our hearts and a window into the heart of God. Many of the Psalms function this way. They're, they're a mirror to our own hearts and they're a window into the heart of God. And so as we look at that, I want us to consider three things. First, I want us to consider uh, the prison that we have made for ourselves that we have made for ourselves a prison in our own sin and shame. Second, I want to look at how Christ sets us free from that prison. And then third, I want to look at what does it mean to live free in Christ, to live in that freedom. So first, a prison of our own making. So the trouble that we all have, that we all face in this life, is that our hearts are prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to wander. We are looking for happiness somewhere apart from God. And we're all tempted to do this. We all do this. Our capacity, in other words, as human beings who are fallen, who have chosen to rebel against God, is incredible when it comes to being dissatisfied with our circumstances or, or to be dissatisfied with ourselves or even to be dissatisfied 
with the Lord. We have a profound capacity for dissatisfaction and to go looking elsewhere for what we're looking for. And so David is in that place. He, he has let his heart wander. He's let his heart wander and engage in some kind of idolatrous relationship or experience. And it, it, it worked for a season. You get this sense that David has kind of been trying something out, and now he's, he's sharing an experience where he came to realize that didn't work. And so he's coming to this place where he's realized, okay, that satisfied me for a time, pursuing this thing apart from God. And I think that highlights something really important. Sin is rarely, sin is rarely painful or distasteful on the front end, right? That's why we choose to go after it. If it was terrible and painful and we saw it for what it was, we would never pursue it over the Lord, but it's a deceit. And so sin is rarely uh, instantly painful or distasteful. It usually is pretty enjoyable on the front end, in the beginning, and then it's corrupting and destructive on the back end. And that's what makes sin so insidious and destructive in our lives. I love how James James Taylor said that he sums up our cultural kind of disposition to sin. He says, if it feels right, don't think twice, right? And I think a lot of us have kind of absorbed that from our culture. If it feels right, do it. And so we're very in tune with kind of this way of approaching life where we see sin and maybe it doesn't look that bad or feel that bad on the front end. But our sin, over time, it's very, very toxic. And when we give in to sin, especially repeatedly, over time, it numbs our hearts to our deepest heart longing, our truest hunger, which is for the fellowship of God himself, to be with him. And so the most terrifying consequences, one of the most terrifying consequences of sin in our life is that we actually lose our desire for God. It it kind of builds on itself. It calluses our hearts against God the more we give in to sin. And, And part of that is our sin produces in us shame. And that shame becomes this barrier, this blockage to God's blessing. Shame is a a sense or a feeling not of just having done something wrong, but of being permanently unlovable. It's seeing yourself not through the eyes of God, but seeing your eyes through this lens that says, I'm a terrible person. I'm a failure. It's self-hatred. It's self-loathing. It says, I can never get it right. I can never be worthy. That's what shame says to us. And it leaves us in a place of fear a place of being exposed or, or discovered. And so what we do is we, we take shame and, and it forces us to stuff, stuff our feelings, stuff our, our sin. We hide, we run, we try to find a place where we can escape. And then when we get to that place, we're terrified to leave it. And so that's the prison of our own making and our own sin. It's our shame. It kind of boxes us in and we can't escape on our own. So this is, this is how David describes this shame box, this prison of our own making. He says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You can feel the sense in which he can't escape. He's gotten kind of caught in this place. And he feels like this kind of hopeless victim trapped in his sin and shame. I don't know if you can identify that. I know that feeling, a feeling kind of trapped in my sin and my shame, convinced that I can't actually receive God's blessing because of something that I've done 
or maybe because of something that someone has done to me, right? Or simply because of the fact I'm convinced of a lie about who I actually am. And so we, we can find ourselves sitting in these prisons of our own making. And Psalm 32 is, is inviting us, if we're trapped in these places, as we're stuck in these prisons, is asking a question. Uh, David is begging a question of us here in Psalm 32. Whose heart, then, does God bless? Right. Whose heart does God bless? Who is God willing to forgive? Who does God favor, then? And this is the amazing response. Us, those in need of forgiveness, those in the prison of our own making. That's who he longs to bless. So I'm tempted, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I'm tempted when I hear the questions, who does God long to bless? Who does God long to forgive? Who is the object of God's favor? When I'm in a place struggling with my sin, my answer is not me. So often my shame drives me to that place. It's not me, the default mode of our hearts is to think that we must somehow perform well enough to earn God's blessing and his favor. It's part of our brokenness, and it's often reinforced by our, our life experience and, and, and our friendships and even our families. Columnist David Brooks, he, he points out in one of his books uh, something that I think I, I've experienced in my own life, and maybe you can relate to this. And this is not a criticism of parents, because I'm a parent, and I'm like, wow, I think I may be unintentionally doing this. He points out that for many children, as they're raised up, what happens is they're unintentionally instilled with this kind of perspective. They have to earn love from God. Because what happens often is by positively reinforcing good behavior and then negatively reinforcing bad behavior, children can misinterpret what's happening to, to mean that they are only loved when they do things well. Can you see how that could happen? I don't think anybody intends that, but I think that, that happens. And so this is, what, this is what Brooks writes. He says, he writes, this sort of love is merit-based at its core. It's not simply I love you. It's I love you when you stay on my balance beam. I love you with conditions if you get it right. Now, most of us live in that kind of mindset Often, we live in the place where we think, okay, I will be blessed if I stay on God's balance beam, if I do it all the right way. So I just wanna highlight what Psalm 32 doesn't say here, right? In other words, Psalm 32 doesn't begin, blessed are those who always say please and thank you, right? It doesn't say blessed are those who read their Bible every day and come to church every Sunday. Great things, but that's not why we are the object of God's blessing. It doesn't say blessed are those who never lust, never lie, never gossip, never fail. It says blessed are the forgiven. Blessed are the forgiven. We buy into all kinds of lies about ourselves and who we are and how God loves us and what we have to do to stay on that balance beam. And in that process, we, we take our sin and we, we bear shame in that sin and we stuff it down and we play games with God and ourselves. We pretend we can, we can get through it on our own. We deny our sin. We cope with our sin in all kinds of ways. And so what happens is on the outside, we can look like we've got it all together. We can look like we're doing great in our life. 
Everything can look fine, but on the inside, we deeply connect with David's words here in Psalm 32, that inwardly we are wasting away. Inwardly, our strength is being dried up and our shame weighs heavily upon us. And so what do we do? That's what David's asking. He's come to terms with this reality. He's saying, okay, what do I do, Lord? And this is where the great news comes in Psalm 32. Great news for for David, great news for those of us who feel trapped in a prison of our own making in our sin and our shame. Psalm 32 says, blessed are the forgiven. In other words, blessed are those who are sinners. And then he says, uh, what's happening here is David's basically, he's saying the quiet part out loud. He's saying, I am actually a sinner. I actually am uh, one who is wallowing in my shame. I am broken. I have turned from the Lord in rebellion, and I've run and I've I've tried to hide from him. I've tried to cover my sinful heart and my secret shame. And now what I realize I have to do in order to get out from this prison, I have to declare that. I have to actually say that part out loud to you, Lord. I have to acknowledge it, he says. Verse five, I acknowledge my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. The first step to freedom is simply admitting that we already know what God already knows. That we have sinned against God and our neighbor. That we have not loved God with our whole heart. That we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We confess. It's interesting to me that David here uses so many different words in Hebrew to describe this problem. Did you notice that? Look at these verses again. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. What's sin? In scripture, sin literally means to to miss the target or to fall short. And then he goes on to say, I did not try to cover up my iniquity. What's iniquity? Well, iniquity is, is the word that is used to talk about our kind of twisted and disordered desires of our hearts. So, so something's gone wrong. We kind of have this fundamental bent in on ourselves instead of outwardly to the glory of God. And so there's iniquity. And then there's the last one he says is transgressions. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Uh, transgressions are our rebellion against God. It's to say, uh, I willfully choose what I want, not what you want, God. That's transgressions. And so what David is saying is we, we, we can confess our sin. We can confess our iniquity. We confess our transgressions, how we've fallen short of God's good and glorious standard, how we've been driven by our selfish and, and twisted desires, how our willful choice to disobey him, to say no to him and to go on our own way. We can confess that. And here's the, the beautiful part in Psalm 32. What happens when we confess Does God look at us and shake his head, wag his finger in our face? Does the Lord express his disappointment in us? Does he turn his back, reject us, crush us like a bug? How will God respond to people who are honest about their sin and their iniquity and their transgressions? God doesn't respond in any of those ways. How does God respond? What does he say? You forgave me. Blessed are the forgiven. Here's perhaps the greatest promise in all of scripture. If you wanna write something down, put it on your bathroom mirror, get a tattoo on your arm, here's what I would recommend. John, in 1 John 1, 19, this is what it says. If we confess our sins, 
God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me say that again. If we confess our sin, if we will confess our sin, he is faithful. That's his response. Faithfulness to us. And he is just. He is right. He is good to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love that. You're not just forgiven. You're cleansed. You're washed clean. You're purified by God. How? The short answer is what we were singing about this morning, by the cross. We are made clean and we are forgiven by the blood of the cross. In Romans 4, the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 32. He specifically looks back to Psalm 32 in these words of David and he argues that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of Psalm 32. How amazing is that? Psalm 32 pointing us directly to Jesus, the Jesus of 1 John 1, 19, the, the God who forgives because of his faithfulness. That's his response to our sin. Blessed are the forgiven. Blessed are those who confess. Why? Because at the cross, Jesus, our Savior, Redeemer of our souls, he took all of our sin, all of our iniquity, all of our transgressions, he took it and put it on himself. Not only our sin, but the shame of our sin. And in that, he forgave us. He forgave us. Hebrews 12.2 says this. Listen to this. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And listen to this. The cross, despising the shame. Whose shame? Our shame. The shame that he bore on himself. The sin that he bore on himself. And he took that all on himself and then he conquered it. And he rose from the dead, and today he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the God who has the power to forgive us, who has conquered sin and death. The joy that was set before him was the salvation of the world through the glory of God. That was his joy. In other words, he did that for you, and he did that for me. He took on our sin, our guilt, our shame. So Psalm 32 is saying, look, you don't, you don't have to run anymore. You don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to try and cover your sinful hearts and hide in your secret shame. You don't have to do that anymore. You can acknowledge your sin. Now, that sounds simple. It sounds simple, but it can be so hard. This can be terrifying. And the deeper we've buried the sin, the more terrifying it is to bring it into the light. And so I'm just gonna give you three quick ways that I think God invites us into this place. It's scary for us to be honest and to acknowledge our sin. This is, these, are, these are three assurances I think that Jesus gives us so that we can be set free in Christ from our sin and the shame. The first one is this, that Jesus carries our sin away. Jesus carries our sin away. I, lo I love this. I learned this this week. The literal meaning of the Hebrew word forgive actually means to carry away. That's what it literally means, to carry away. Why does it mean that? Well, it's looking back into the Old Testament on this idea of the scapegoat in Leviticus, which bears the people's sins away into the wilderness. It was a symbol that God himself, like the scapegoat, would take on himself all our guilt and all our shame and that he would carry it away. He would carry it away. Our sin is a burden too heavy for us to carry. We weren't made to carry the burden of our sin and our shame. And so this burden that we carry, the way that we unload that burden, that we put that burden on Christ and let him carry it away is confession. 
We confess our sin. And so it's like this process of surrendering this huge weight to Jesus. When you confess, you can picture yourself taking your sin and surrendering it and laying it on Christ and him carrying it away. That's what he's done. The second thing that Jesus does with our sin when we confess is he covers our sin. He covers our sin. God is so holy, he cannot look on our sin. God is so holy, he cannot look on our sin. Our sin actually separates us from God. And no matter what we do, we can't actually cover our sin or cleanse ourselves so that we can come into the presence of a holy God. We can't do that on our own. And so again, in the Old Testament, during the Day of Atonement, what would happen is the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, this place in the tabernacle in the temple. He would go into the Holy of Holies, and what would happen is he would take the blood sacrifice, and he would take that blood, and he would cover everything in blood. He would scatter the blood over everything in the Holy of Holies. So just picture that, blood covering everything. It's a powerful and gruesome image, but here's the, the point of that. The meaning of that was that through the blood, this symbolic blood, there is a foreshadowing of blood that will cover over the sins of the people. And it wasn't the blood of an animal, it was the blood of the very Son of God himself, of Jesus Christ. The blood of his precious Son that covers our futile and fallen ways. It was a picture pointing to the blood of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus is thick. The blood of Jesus covers every part of us, every sin, every part of our shame. Whatever you've done, there's nothing that can't be covered by the blood of Jesus. Whatever you've done, it has been covered by Christ, by his blood. And so our shame, our fear of being exposed, here's the thing, here's the paradox. It actually is a very real fear because that's exactly what happens. God actually brings our sin and our shame into the light. And when he does that, what's happening is he's uncovering us so he can then cover us. He's uncovering us to cover us with his blood. He draws near, he covers us with the blood of Jesus. And then finally, in Jesus, we are counted righteous. Even if God carried away our sin, even if he covered our sin, it would not be enough to make us whole, to make us right. We would still be incapable of living in faithful obedience to God. Our conscience knows that we have broken God's law and that we will again, that we've rebelled against him and that we will again. And so on our own, we can't be faithful. We know that we can't deserve God's righteousness. But in Christ, we know that there's no condemnation. Why? Because God accepts us and declares us right with him because of what Christ has done for us. We are declared righteous. God accepts us not because we get it right, but because of his love for us in Jesus. The gospel is that our sin, all of it, not just some of it or the worst parts of it, but all of it was placed on Jesus on the cross. And if we put our trust in this Jesus and his perfect obedience to God, that it's been credited to us. And now that in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we can be free from the power of sin and death. And so we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to stuff our sin and live in shame. We can confess our sin because in Christ we have been covered, our sin has been carried away, and we are counted righteous. So praise God. Quickly, let me just hit these before the kids come in. Living free in Christ. I just wanna highlight two implications of this that we see in Psalm 32. The first is that we're invited to take up a way of repentance. Repentance is not a one-time thing. It's not a destination. It's a way of life. And true repentance, true repentance 
is a repentance that realizes that we are forgiven before we ever utter a word, before we ever turn to Christ. His forgiveness greets us like the father on the road to the prodigal. That repentance is, encounters the mercy of God and the love of God. And so true repentance is a way of life, coming again and again to the God who forgives. He forgives, he always forgives. And so I wanna encourage you, if, if repentance and confession is not a pattern in your life, make it one. Make it a way of life. When was the last time you confessed your sin before the Lord? When was the last time you confessed your sin to a trusted brother or sister? Each week we confess our sin because we are leaning into God's kindness as a community. That he will forgive us. Not that we hope he'll forgive us. He will forgive us because of the cross. And the second is uh, cut loose in worship. I'll just say it that way. I love how Tim Mackey describes Psalm 32. He says it's like a ski jump. He said you you drop in uh, and you got deep into confession. Confession takes you down, down, down. And at the bottom, instead of encountering uh, his disappointment or his judgment, what do you encounter? You encounter his mercy and his forgiveness. And at the bottom, it shoots you back up off the ski jump into worship. Look at how Psalm 32 ends. It ends with these words of praise and glory praising God and giving thanks to him. It leads to worship. That's where Psalm 32 takes us. So when we're in the depths and darkness and depravity of our sin, when they've been exposed and dealt with by Christ at Calvary, our natural response can be a freedom to worship, to burn with worship out of gratitude because of what God has done for us. Worship is contagious. That kind of worship is contagious. Worship that emerges from deep repentance because it's worship based in gratitude. So we're gonna um, pivot into a time of, of prayer. And as we do that, I want us to read Psalm 32 responsibly together. This has been our practice. And what I wanna invite you to do is to see it as an act of, of confession and an act of worship. Both these things that we do together so if you want to grab uh, one of these red books uh, near you, in the seat back near you, it's called the Book of Common Prayer. If you want to open to Psalm 32, and we can go ahead, and, uh, if somebody wants to let the kids come in so they can join us as we read Psalm 32 together. So turn to Psalm 32 on page 306. And as we've done before, we're going to read this uh, as a prayer together. So I invite you, we're just going to read it slowly and allow the Lord to minister. And that really is my prayer, is that God would minister to us because all of us carry these kinds of burdens. All of us need God's forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. And so as the kids come on in, we're gonna pray together. Y'all come on in. Find your parents. We're gonna pray. We're just about to pray, so perfect timing. Come on in. So again, page 306, Psalm 32. All right, kids, welcome back. We're about to pray. So if you wanna grab a seat and we're gonna pray through Psalm 32 together. I know y'all been talking about Psalm 32 this morning. And so we're gonna pray through Psalm 32 by half verse. So every time you see a star, the congregation will read the part after the star and I'll get us started. So Heavenly Father, we come to you and we wanna pray the words of Psalm 32. 
Lord, and we want to be reminded of your great love for us and that you forgive us. Lord, not because of anything we've done, but because of what you've done through your son for us. And so, Lord, we pray these words in the name of Jesus. Blessed is the one whose unrighteousness is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one to whom the Lord imputes no sin and in whose spirit there is no God. For while I held my tongue, my bones wasted away. I ceased not from groaning all the day long. For your hand was heavy upon me day and night, and I was dried up and withered as in the drought of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin unto you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my sins unto the Lord. And so you forgave the wickedness of my sin. For this reason shall all the godly make their prayers unto you at a time when you may be found. When the great flood waters rise, they shall not reach them. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall encompass me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. And I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse and mule, which have no understanding, whose mouths must be held with bit and bridle, or else they will not come near you. Great troubles remain for the ungodly, but mercy embraces those who trust in the Lord. Be glad, O you righteous, and rejoice in the Lord. And be joyful, all who are true of heart. So we continue in a few moments of prayer. Holy Spirit, as we've read these words, prayed these words together, I pray that you would do, um, Lord, heart business with each of us. Lord, I know that in a room this size, um, some of us are really struggling Lord, some of us are bearing burdens that we can't possibly continue to bear. Lord, that in our lives there's unconfessed sin. So Lord, I pray that today in the name of Jesus, that we all might know the freedom of forgiveness. That we might know your mercy and your grace. Lord, that there is nothing in us, nothing that we have done that you cannot forgive. So Holy Spirit, would you be at work? Draw us to your grace. Thank you for the cross. Lord, we thank you that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who know your kindness and that repentance would be a way of life. 
Lord, that we would be a people of such gratitude that we burn with worship. The worship of the forgiven. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at apostleshouston.org.